Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Minnesota roads continue to be deadlier than ever. October is Bullying Prevention and Awareness Month, and part two of our look at a new book on the history of the Minnesota Vikings. But first, no surprise, but still big news this week as Governor Tim Walls announced he's running for a second term with Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan again as his running mate. The fight's not over, but we've got the ball back. We're on offense and we're making progress. But the same people who blocked us are trying to take us backwards. Their dangerous views, discouraging vaccines and masking, downplaying COVID, put politics ahead of science and put lives at risk. We won't let that happen. We've got to move forward as one Minnesota. When I hear a politician say, follow the science, it makes me chuckle. I'll tell you what, Governor Walls, let's just have a debate. Governor Walls at one table, me at another, and let the people judge. Former State Senator Scott Jensen, a medical doctor and one of the governor's Republican challengers, wasting no time in framing what will likely be one of the top issues of the campaign. Another Republican challenger, Ham Lake Senator Michelle Benson, said Walls, who's a former teacher, does whatever the Education Minnesota Teachers Union tells him. In August of 2020, elementary students could have gone back to school. Instead, he shut them down and he made the opportunity gap in Minnesota even bigger. The governor responded, students are at the center of decisions during the pandemic. When it came time for outside groups to take a look at what these last 18 months meant, and where it was the best and safest place to be a child, it was right here in the state of Minnesota. We just don't think that you should force people to be vaccinated. We don't think you should force people to wear the mask. Brainerd Lakes area senator and former majority leader Paul Gazelka, another of the Republicans, vying for his party's nomination to challenge Walls. And what could even be a bigger issue in the governor's re-election campaign? We saw him sit on his hands while Minneapolis and St. Paul burned. The radical left keeps talking about defunding the police. Senator Benson said in her travels across the state, she hears from families who, quote, no longer feel safe in their communities and don't believe the governor is doing anything to help and, quote, from law enforcement who feel the governor doesn't have their back. Republican rival Paul Gazelka echoed. Without a doubt, uh, people do not feel safe right now, and I blame and put that blame on Governor Tim Walls and the mayors of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Walls has said he does not support defunding the police, but reiterated this week in a virtual rally with supporters that he will continue pushing for police reform. When I hear from black families saying, I shouldn't have to worry for my 16-year-old son driving to basketball practice, we're willing to and we're committed to making those changes. You can hold two thoughts at the same time. We can ask for police reform while also tackling gun violence and crime. That's what our communities are asking for. The governor is in a tough position in his campaign for re-election, says Hamlin University political and legal expert David Schultz. What's really happening right now is that Walt is really running, really what, a defensive campaign, at least initially. And defensive campaigns are hard to win. And so what he needs to figure out how to do um, is to change the, the, the rhetoric from responding to Republican attacks from having to defend himself to either putting himself on the offensive, that is, the positive vision that he has for the state of Minnesota, 
or pushing the Republicans into a defensive mode. So what what can he do to switch that around, or does he have to wait for events that are out of his control? I mean, I hate to say, you know, but maybe the pandemic to worsen um, so that he can he can show leadership in that area, or what is necessary, really? Well, what he has to do at this point is really shift the burden over to Republicans. And if he's now going into a point where he's saying that, well, Republicans are to blame, for example, the rising COVID, um, COVID infection rates, or they basically have made it difficult for him to be able to do a variety of things. That's what he has to start to shift it towards in terms of uh, of taking um, what really right now are some negatives. You know, again, the state state is experiencing a dramatic resurgence in terms of infections, hospitalizations, and so forth. And it's kind of hard to make that a positive thing for your campaign. He is dealing with a situation where Minneapolis and St. Paul are dealing with record crime rates, and so law and order is going to be the issue also. And this may be something that's largely out of his control. He really can't control what's happening in Minneapolis and St. Paul, but yet nonetheless, um, what's happening there is going to dramatically impact his campaign. So given the circumstances he's presented with, what can he do to turn this the other way? He has to figure out a way of, of really shifting the rhetoric. Again, the way I describe it is define or be defined. And right now, the Republicans are in the position of being able to define Waltz um, as the candidate um, who is overseeing what? Perhaps an unsuccessful um, um, war against the pandemic um, as a governor whose tag perhaps is being soft on crime. Uh, and Waltz has to figure out a way of coming out from under that. At the same time, I think he faces challenges, that is, Waltz within his own party, that there are many of the liberals within his party, the more progressive wing of his party, that criticizes him for not pushing hard enough, for example, on, on police reform after the death of, of George Floyd. So he has to shore up, that is, the governor has to shore up his progressive wing of the base, still hold the moderates, um, and then persuade those suburban swing voters um, that, that he is a better alternative than the Republicans. Professor Schultz says Republicans, on the other hand, are in a much simpler position with their political base. Enforce the existing laws and get more cops on the street. Scott? Thank you, Bill. We'll have more Minnesota Matters after this. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota electric co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Change a light bulb, save some green. Just replace traditional light bulbs with energy-efficient bulbs and fixtures. If you're like most people, 20% of your home electric bills go directly to lighting. Every light we switch to one bearing the government's Energy Star label uses at least two-thirds less energy than older bulbs. Such a light will save more than $30 in energy costs over its lifetime. Brighten your environmental future. From the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. As Minnesota approaches and surpasses 400 traffic deaths on the state's roadways for the year, public safety officials are calling for drivers to do better behind the wheel. At a press conference this week, the Office of Traffic Safety's Mike Hansen called the situation horrible and this is unacceptable. And we've been pleading with Minnesotans about the traffic fatality crisis that has taken place since the start of the pandemic last year. The effort we've been putting into this problem over the past year and a half has been extensive. Some may even say unprecedented. Most noticeably, there has been extra attention to the speeding problem, which is everywhere in Minnesota. So we've been working on social media, we've had extra patrols out there with our law enforcement partners, and we've held numerous other types of public outreach events and press conferences. Minnesotans may be familiar with our regular campaigns around behaviors such as distracted driving, the importance of wearing your seatbelt all the time, and impairment. They're important and these, these help save lives across the state. But we're past familiar campaigns now. Things have drastically changed on Minnesota roads in a very tragic and horrific way. These kind of news conferences and this kind of attention over the past year and a half, especially as it relates to speeding, is unprecedented in recent years and it should not have to happen. We shouldn't be here today with all of our guests talking to you about traffic safety on Minnesota roads. Assistant Department of Public Safety Commissioner Booker Hodges says, not surprisingly, speeding is a key factor in many of the state's crashes. We have had 124 speed-related deaths this year. People just need to slow the, and you insert the four-letter word here, there's a song titled Last Kiss by Frank J. Wilson, and it was later redone by Pearl Jam for those of you who are a little bit younger. It was one of the saddest songs I believe ever made, and it's about a car crash. Part of the lyrics goes as follows. I raised her head, and when she smiled and said, hold me, darling, for a little while. I held her close, and I kissed her, our last kiss. I found a love I knew I would miss. But now she's gone, though I hold her tight. I lost the love of my life that night. And everybody knows the lyrics, uh, where oh where did my baby be, or where oh where could my baby be, the Lord took her away from me. Slow down, stop drinking and driving, stop smoking weed and driving, stop smoking, or stop popping pills and driving, stop texting and driving, so we can all stop having our last kiss with the loved ones, with our loved ones, due to their lives being taken to a preventable traffic crash. Kellen Schmidt was the victim of a traffic crash in 2021, and he shared his heartbreaking story at this week's press conference. I work for a local utility utility company here in uh, Minnesota. Uh, in March here of 2021, I was struck by a semi. Um, and I was at work on a Friday afternoon, half hour before leaving for the day. And I currently am struggling from a traumatic brain injury. My life has changed. Before my brain injury, I was very active. Life was great. I married a beautiful wife. We've been trying to have kids. We've been trying to start a family. And now our life is on hold. I can't do the things I want. 
every night when I go to bed, I just don't even want to wake up the next day. I can't sleep. Going to bed, it feels like somebody is literally taking a knife and cutting my brain out. The headaches are severe. Life is just not the same. I worry life is never going to be the same again. I go to treatment almost every day. I go to physical therapy. I go to all my clinics, uh, appointments. I go past my coworkers. I see them working on power lines. I go past the, the other utility companies and I see the men and women out in the field working up high in the air and I just wonder if that's ever gonna be me again. I love my job. I would do anything to get back out in the field. A couple years ago, I had over a thousand hours just in overtime. I live to work. There's no better feeling than going out in the middle of the night and getting the customer's power back on. I recently just bought a brand new boat. That boat sits in the garage. I look at it, didn't get to go on the trips I wanted this summer, it just sits. Didn't get to go on the trips I wanted with my wife. My summer was ruined. Hunting season's coming up, can't hunt, can't do the things I wanted to do. Like I said, the plans for starting a family are put on hold. We're talking to the doctors, trying to figure out the next steps. I spend my days and weeks scheduling therapies. I spend my days going to therapies. I go and talk to the doctors and we both bang our heads off the walls figuring, I mean, what's the cure? What is the cure? How can we, how can we get this brain injury past us and get, get back to work, get life back to normal? Is there hope? Is there hope? My message in Minnesota, my message to all you drivers is put both hands on the steering wheel and just drive. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. October is Bullying Prevention and Awareness Month. Tasha Radel has more. It's an important time to reflect and remember the statistics which show it's very likely you and your family know someone that's fallen victim to bullying. Joining me today is Julie Herzog with Minnesota-based Pacers National Bullying Prevention Center. Julie, let's talk about the history of this Awareness Month. Sure. As you mentioned, uh, October is National Bullying Prevention Month, and it was started in 2006 by Pacer Center, which is a Minneapolis-based nonprofit working with students with disabilities. And our organization got involved with the topic of bullying because kids with disabilities are bullied at a much higher rate than their peers. And so we started the National Bullying Prevention Center and that our our project is for all students. And so when when we started the the month in 2006, we realized there was a lot of interest. And so we wanted to add a signature day to really have, uh, you know, like a hallmark event to recognize the month. And so in 2011, 10 years ago, the first Unity Day was held. 
And it had a very, and still has, a very simple call to action, which is to wear the color orange to very symbolically show that you are united um, for kindness, acceptance, and inclusion to prevent bullying. Now, if I remember right, Julie, close to one in six kids falls victim to bullying. Is this correct? It's very close to that. It's one in five. And so, the you know, we've been using the same um, statistics for, for several years are the same at the National Center for Educational Statistics for the last few years. And it, it is at one in five now. But we always say if it's one in five kids, it's probably happening to somebody that you know and care about. And there's also the great probability that it's underreported as well. And so, you know, it might be even happening more frequently than that. And so we do know, too, that we've been talking about the topic of bullying for a while. And I think it used to be viewed as just a natural rite of childhood passage. You know, it was like the old adage, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And we realize now how demoralizing bullying is. Not only what happens to kids physically when they're pushed or shoved or their belongings are destroyed or taken, but also what happens to them emotionally. And there's so much that the research is showing, everything from kids not wanting to go to school for fear of being bullied, all the way up to just, you know, loss of sleep, um, getting, you know, getting physical symptoms such as stomach aches or headaches because they don't want to, they're afraid to go to school and, and face the people who are bullying them. But there's also things that are much more serious like anxiety and depression and even kids who are doing, you know, self-harm in response to being bullied. So it's a very, you know, still a very serious issue. Well, this is really hard to admit, but it still troubles me to this day. I was actually bullied starting in the fifth grade. I remember playing four square on the school playground and a female classmate of mine throwing worms at me and saying, well, not so nice things to me. It actually still haunts me to this day. I'm assuming that bullying doesn't end on the playground these days like it did for me when I was a kid. You know, I got to leave school and go to the comfort of my home. Has social media and electronics worsened bullying? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it has evolved in the way, just as technology has evolved, so has the way that, that people bully or kids bully. And if you think about it years ago, when we first started talking about this topic, it was it was limited to the, you know, the playground or the classroom. But now with social media and other forms of technology, such as gaming and text, uh, kids have the way to have the opportunity now to instantly reach thousands of others with negative messaging about someone else. And so the, the hurt and humiliation is just exponentially compounded when you think it's not only the people who can see it physically at a school, but now they read it online and, you know, and the harmful effects of that are just absolutely devastating for kids because you can imagine what it's like to open up a social media site and see something negative posted about yourself and that yeah, there's that opportunity for thousands of others to read it as well. It's just, it's absolutely devastating for kids. And Julie, I'll admit, when I was bullied, it was really hard for me, I guess, to tell my parents or any adult for that matter. I don't know why. Maybe it was uh, pride or just the fact that maybe I was disappointing someone. Does this hold true for many bullying victims? Yeah, you know, and that's such a great point because we, our first point of advice to all kids is to tell someone, but 
it's not that easy to do because, number one, you, there's a lot of emotion when you're bullied. You can feel sad. You can feel anger. You might feel like you did something to deserve it. And it's not always easy for kids to tell an adult, but we really try to stress with kids, this is if you're being bullied, it's not your fault. You have the right to be safe and that we're going to work together with you to to find a solution to this. And I think, you know, that support is so important because what happens is so much of bullying now, if you think about the Internet and online, um, but it's happening outside the view of adults. And so unless someone is telling an adult, they probably, you know, there's the chances are they may not even know it's happening. And so we always tell if you're being bullied, please tell an adult. Um, or if you see somebody being bullied, we really encourage kids to, A, either help that, uh, you know, your peer tell an adult or report it yourself because, Without adult intervention, oftentimes bullying doesn't end. Well, we're about out of time. Uh, Julie, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you and all you do there at PACER to combat bullying. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us on the program, and we, we appreciate all you, all you do for this important topic. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch-snuggling, ball-chasing, face-licking, tail-wagging, backyard-hanging, and, of course, companionship. And what breed would you say Satchmo is? I'd have to go with maybe a lavish terrier-hound, chihuahua-looking kind of mix. Tremendous dog. Mm, I'd also like to point out Satchmo's coloring, a white, gray, brown, black brindle, simply marvelous. You know, it's such a treat to watch a dog like this. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive. And now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance, so common with this group. And finally, the loving face lick. It's great how he just gets in there and, well, licks. Fantastic. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. There's a new book chronicling the history of the Minnesota Vikings called Kings of the North. Author Chad Israelson joined MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm to talk about the new offering in last week's Minnesota Matters. In part two of the interview, Israelson explains that he enjoyed researching the book and found some new details he'd forgotten growing up a Vikings fan. Sometimes it was just uh, sort of recapping a, a game, for example. I mean, just one of them that stands out was a a Washington game in 1986. Uh, Washington ended up winning in uh, overtime, 44-38. It was just a huge shootout. Tommy Kramer threw for 490 yards. and uh, But in the game, uh, the Washington kicker, I believe, missed two extra points and had another one blocked. You know, And I, I didn't remember that specific moment from the game, I thought, wow, you know, that, uh, I remember the game being wild, but that's crazy. But it also, you know, then reminded me, you know, the Vikings have this great history of blocking kicks. Uh, you know, I remember the 1976 NFC championship game where Nate Allen blocks the kick, Bobby Bryant picks it up, goes 90 yards for a touchdown. And we go to the Super Bowl. you know? So, um, 
it was really fun to go back and read the reports of, of those games. And then also just to see what they were saying about some of them. Um, I had the newspaper from the Herschel Walker trade <laughs> oh. and uh, I won't say who it was that wrote it, but uh, you know, they were talking about how we fleeced the Cowboys and you know, like this was such a great trade and you know, we really pulled one over on those bumpkins down in Dallas. Uh, uh kind of missed on that one, but <laughs> yeah, that's a, um, the history won't look fondly upon the, uh, upon that one, I guess. No, no, but it was, you know, that, that part of it was a lot of fun. I, I, I you know, I, obviously as a historian, I love researching. Um, and, uh, since the Vikings are one of my favorite subjects, just going back into those old, uh, Viking reports. I mean, that was something that, you know, I would get in the mail and couldn't wait for it to come. Um, and so just to look at them again, you know, you don't get that much opportunity to pull that stuff out. So, um, I suppose uh, there's some sadness to this in terms of, uh, you know, that we're, we're losing some of these guys that we grew up following. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's the kind of thing that, uh, of course, uh, just as a fan, you know, not knowing these individuals, but it really marks the passing of time. You know, you kind of lose your childhood. You grew up in La Crescent, Minnesota. You live in Rochester now. Think back to your days as a youngster. Who were some of the your favorite Vikings players? Were you a kid that would be in the backyard and playing with your friends and you'd envision yourself being some Vikings as you guys would throw the football around? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that uh, that was a necessity, and that was pretty much – you know, every Saturday and Sunday, I mean, we'd have a game. Uh, my favorite players, uh, I, you know, I, I do, I'm able to straddle those, those eras, you know, so I still have the, the Tarkington Foreman, Paige Eller Marshall, you know, uh, and I was, of my friends, I was, you know, the, the, maybe the smallest built. So I was on defense, I was Jim Marshall. Mm. Um, so, uh, uh, Fran Tarkenton, obviously favorite. Everyone loved Chuck Foreman and his spin move. Uh, and then, uh, really for me, as I started to get a little bit older, it was the receivers, Ahmad Rashad and Sammy White. Uh, loved them. And I loved the receiving running backs that the Vikings had, Ricky Young uh, and Ted Brown. And then, of course, you know, it just keeps going from there uh, in the 80s. Um, you know, Hassan Jones was always one of my favorite players. You know, he's kind of a, a guy that most people don't remember, but uh, uh, great hands. Uh, of course, you know, you move into the Anthony Carter uh, era as well with him on defense, Joey Browner, Scott Studwell. So it's just, you know, as I wrote this book, just going through and thinking, wow, there has been so much talent that has gone through Minnesota. I mean, you could start just a Hall of Fame defensive line with Paige, Randall, uh, Carl Eller, um, Chris Dolman, you know, another, uh, another one the, lost, right? National Football League Hall of Fame. So yeah, it's uh, again just you know, just been a lot of fun, uh, sort of reconnecting with my memories uh, of, of these players, and I'm hoping then that this book allows people to do that for themselves as well. Yeah, it's a great history. The name of the book is Kings of the North, Photographs and History of the Minnesota Vikings. The author, Chad Israelson, has been our guest. It's a great book. I think Viking fans are really going to love it. It's brand new. How can people get the book, Chad? Uh, you can get it wherever books are sold. So whatever your preferred uh, format is, if you want to order it from your local bookstore, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, whatever the case may be, wherever books are sold, uh, you can get it. Awesome. Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And Skoll. That's Kings of the North author Chad Israelson with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. 
That is going to do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.